Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrowcasting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Twelfth of March, Saturday. Last night I lay awake, listening to the rain drum on the cabin roof. Nighttime's not a good time to think things through. The shadows grow too dark and too large. The dressing gown hanging on the hook can too easily transform into a monster. I could imagine the circles made by the rain on the dark waters beside me, and the hunched figures of ducks, heads tucked beneath wings, one eye open. And that, for me, made the difference. This is the narrowboat 506812, Yerika nestling in the dark of night and narrow-casting across skies of rolling clouds. Penny had an extremely adventurous and busy day today, so she's already fast asleep. Thank you for coming. It's warm and it's safe here. So welcome aboard. Where we're currently moored, is a bit of a frost bowl and so those signs of spring the the blossom and the early flowers that I see when I'm driving around are not really so evident here yet but the towpath verges are beginning to turn from brown into rich greens thick sticky mats of goose grass ripe for the picking a poor man's vegetable but hugely welcome after a hard winter. And whenever I see it, I remember our hens, who used to absolutely adore it. At this time of year, we would gather great armfuls of it, and they would just tuck into it with so much joy and enthusiasm. And dandelion and dock shoots are everywhere, and no doubt there are constellations of celandine about, but I've not seen any here quite yet. There's a few sparse clusters of blackthorn blossom appearing, but mainly the hedges are still winter bare. If just that hint of a green fuzz when you look at them from a distance. And the ducks and the moorhens are really busy at the moment and the sky is full of duck duels. And earlier this morning, at first light, three herring gulls came to the hill above us and were wheeling around, and again there seemed to be, I think, a territorial dispute going on. They looked strange and out of place, and for a while I couldn't actually quite work out what they were. Their sun was catching their plumage so that the whites were 
dazzlingly white and the grey was this beautiful sort of stormy sky grey. And no doubt the rooks and the ducks and all the birds that are beginning to nest and lay eggs were keeping their eye on this trio. And here on Erica we're both itching to have a real good proper spring clean and dust down and shake out all the cobwebs of winter and also begin to do some of the jobs that we've been itching to get started and just really waiting for good weather. And also the other thing is just to get out and to to be out and about a little bit more. And all the movement around us is giving us itchy feet. If you have any questions or want to know a bit more about the podcast or the Erica, or just want to see some photographs and go behind the scenes or just read a little bit more information about some of the things that we talk about in these episodes, then you can visit the NOSW pod website and the link is in the program notes below. It's always really lovely to hear from you. And you are such an important and integral part of these podcasts. And you can always just leave a comment or a review or or just get in contact with me, either by using the contact form or leaving a voice message by clicking on the microphone icon. Or alternatively, you can just contact me on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram or by emailing me at nighttimeonstillwaters at gmail.com. And again, all the links are in the program notes below. And I really appreciate, Mark, you getting in contact with me. And, and thank you. That was really kind of you. And I was very touched by your words. And somebody else who contacted me is one of my old friends. We, we went to the same school together. Um, who now is living in the northwest coast of Ireland, Tony. And he was writing about last week's episode and particularly my comments about the when the fairs came to the village. And he prodded awake some more memories of fairgrounds and in a very evocative way. And it was really, he was one of the points that he was talking about in his email was the fact that really theme parks have probably taken the place for most people than from fairs. And he said, the thing with theme parks that I missed though was the fairground lorries, large, powerful, rigid, chassis things with substantial tow bars for the equally large trailer that they would tow. Almost entirely made up of old British lorries, Scammell, ERF, Foden, Bedford, American, and Alexander Dennis. I used to love to wander past them, fascinated by the generators on the back which would be providing power for the rides. The smell and the noise together with the sense of power would leave me spellbound. And I know what you mean, that you're, you're right. It was that constant noise of engines running, of generators and 
sometimes the lorry engines themselves was that as much part of the fairground experience as the the music and everything else yeah lovely memories and and mentioning those names of the old lorry makes so evocative and uh, brought back so many lovely memories thank you tony It is a really beautiful picture. Three strong figures, unglazed white, high in a sky of Wedgwood blue. The leading figure, slightly smaller, arrow-sharp. Behind, two parents, slightly closer to each other, each matching broad, graceful wingbeat for wingbeat. The sun, catches the primary flight feathers and the darker wing lining and coverts. They look like depictions of angels' wings. Our pair of adult swans taking flight with their youngster, Cyril. It's a picture full of poignancy too. Jeremy, one of our neighbouring boaters and who took the photograph, described it as if the parents were giving Cyril a flying lesson. And it's the last time I've seen them fly together. And perhaps this will be the last picture of them together as a family. I saw them all a day or so later, but all three were on guard. Not aggressive, but alert, bristling, wings slightly arced, although not fully busking, but also not fully at rest. Messages were being sent and received, and Cyril and his parents keeping at uneasy distance, and Cyril's signets peeps and whistles are now silent. Since then, the parents have regularly been back, but without Cyril. I discovered him this morning by accident as the dawn was softening the sky and he was on his own in the middle of the little cow pond, head tucked right under his wing. And if he had sensed our presence, he certainly didn't show it. He made no movement. And it's a good spot for him to sleep. Secluded, but the pond is large enough to deter an opportunistic attack. There was no sign of his parents and I was glad. For the time has come for Cyril and his parents to embark on the next stages of their lives. And did they know this as they were flying under that cornflower sky, their wings lit like angels? Even while they were moving apart, pushing Cyril away, did they feel that parental tension, keeping an eye on him? teaching them the skills that he would need, making sure that he could read the currents of the air through the pinions of his wings, while simultaneously saying, Now is the time to go. Is that what was happening in the photograph? The confliction of keeping safe and letting go? the two adults renewing their bond between each other as nesting season and breeding season begins, but at the same time checking in on their offspring. <laughs> 
making sure that he has every chance to survive? Or were they simply shepherding him away? We'll never know. Earlier in the week, Penny and I were beside the remnants of their nest. It was always more of a heap, a land-borne raft of reeds and grasses. And it's still here, among the reed dieback, and a few shards of shell still remain, perhaps one part of the egg that contained that strong life of Cyril. And the parents were young, new to parenthood, and there were so many attempts to build a nest, eggs laid and then abandoned, until that one day in mid-June and five signets were born. Four were sadly taken one night in July, but Cyril survived, and if you've listened to earlier podcasts, you already know of his adventures, getting lost, being rescued. Cyril has grown. And the parents have done well. They had no handbook, no instruction manual, no one to tell them what to do. And they've tried and experimented and sometimes got it wrong, but they've persevered. And Cyril is a credit to them. And now, as it is right, it is time to leave. Malcolm Shull's magnificent book, The Swan, The Natural History, and a must for any swan lovers, explains that parents and offspring will stay together as a family unit until the spring when the urge to breed once again takes over the adult birds, and then the young are quite literally chased away. And Shull goes on to state that once they leave their parents, young swans usually join up with other adolescent birds until they become old enough to find a mate and breed themselves. And most groups of swans seen on rivers and lakes comprise such birds together with non-breeding adults. Simon Barnes, in what to my mind is the best guide for anyone who is beginning birdwatching, the bad birdwatcher's companion, points out that there is a very good reason why young swans hold on to their juvenile plumage. He writes, In the breeding season, swans are notably aggressive to other birds, and they are toughest on other adult swans. The younger, non-breeding birds retain their dirty, ugly duckling look for good reason, as an advertisement of the fact that they are posing no threat to a breeding swan. And it is true that juveniles who have refused to leave, for one reason or another, have been killed. And then usually at this point, talk turns to the cruelty or harshness of nature, as if we were in some way separate from it, as if we were no longer apart, having transcended above it somehow. But there is nothing strange about this process. The parting of Cyril and his parents is something nearly every one of us has experienced. That conflicted, messily emotional, confused adolescent period of growing up. 
and perhaps some have experienced it from both sides, child and parent. But what Cyril has experienced is no more than that natural process of growing up. Yes, surely it's right to say that to the observer it can be disturbing, watching a youngster being rejected by their parent. And again, perhaps it's because it awakens in us those conflicted feelings of empathy, pity, anger, sense of fairness. Restirring those days when there was that ever-growing awareness that the very things that made me feel safe, loved, protected, and which kept me close to the family home, started to begin to evoke such strong opposite emotions. I can remember my adolescence, and I took it hard. I mean, nowhere near as hard as many have, but for my limited worldliness, pretty hard. Spending lots of time locking myself away in my bedroom, looking out of the window. And during the winter, playing records on the old gramophone record with the Aladdin bowl heater roaring away, turning my legs red and blotchy, the room smelling hot with paraffin and scorched linen. In the summer evenings, sitting on the windowsill with a cherry blossom just within reach, losing myself in the amber glow of the street lamp on Coniston Road and the great long cliff of roof tiles rising to the sky, letting the scents and sounds of the neighbourhood rise up to me like a Janisean song and imagining the lives happening in all the houses and the gardens up and down the road. The roads behind, so familiar, and yet so unknown, so that their names, Coniston Road, Osborne Avenue, Bellum Road, Havelock Road, Whitler's Drive, sang to me like undiscovered countries. And for me, in many ways, they were. Sitting there at the table by the window, two fingers stabbing at the old typewriter keyboard, tapping out terrible prose and poetry. And so much stuff filled my head. So many words were there. But I had nothing to say. And there were days at that time when I felt so alive it was as if I wore no skin at all, just bare nerves jangling with the unfathomable, almost indescribable beauty and vividness of everything that I encountered. And at times it was almost unbearable. And I had no words to convey it, as though I just typed and typed and typed. And there are nights when I'm still there, at that overloaded windowsill in front of the cherry tree, sitting at the typewriter, typing, 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 desperately trying to find something to say. And much later in life, we were talking about adolescence, mum and dad and myself, and growing up. And 
I'd mentioned to mum about my rebellious period when I rush upstairs from work and essentially cut myself off. And I felt guilty and sad and realised that however I was feeling, it must have felt hurtful to them. And she replied, Oh, did you, dear? We didn't notice. And how did Cyril and his parents process those same changes and shifts in their relationships? Did they understand it any better than I did? What was once protective began to feel restrictive. What once drew me began to repel me. And did the poles in their lives change as they did in mine and every other adolescent? All I knew was that what felt familiar, comforting, reassuring, began to feel odd, off-key, sort of wrong, a bit like Christmas decorations in the middle of summer. And as much as I wanted to stay, I had that peculiar and unsettling feel that it was time to leave, to break free, to fly the nest, to learn to fly. And I was so fortunate as mum and dad gave me that space so that the transition into adulthood was fairly painless. And that time for Cyril has also come. The world, perhaps for him, feeling a little larger, more uncompromising, perhaps a little less safe, a bit less secure, feeling more unpredictable, feelings that I think many of us have been experiencing recently. After nearly two weeks on Wednesday, Cyril reappeared, his brown mottled plumage softening out to white, giving him a slightly unkempt, blotchy, muddy appearance. But I'm mindful of Simon Barnes' comment about the youthful brown offering protection, and so I'm glad that even in its diminishing, with his bluish beak, it is still very visible. It's going to keep him safe. And I had been keeping my eye open for him, as earlier in the morning Carl had posted on WhatsApp that he was in the vicinity. And although all winter we'd not been feeding the ducks because of avian flu, and the mildness of the season also meant that there was plenty of food around, and it's good not to let birds become too dependent, change their habits, or even battle over new territories just on the capricious whims of human generosity. Nevertheless, for old time's sake, I rushed back down into the stern to get that little bucket of duck food that has been here for a while. And he'd already seen me and was even then gliding over that smooth, unhurried, alternate-footed doggy paddle, his head cocked to one side, short glances left and right. As always when food is around, the ducks shuffled off their invisibility cloaks, emerging close to the boats out of nowhere. It was good meeting Cyril, being in contact. Crouched on the stern, looking into those beetle-black 
glistening eyes. The assured movements, the unhurried nuzzling and sifting of the water. There's no place for pity or sadness or even loss in them. If he feels different, if he feels as if the world is in some way changed, and he must do, his glances up and down are not for companionship of his parents, but to distance himself from them. And however he processes that, and whatever chemical responses that churn in his body and in his brain, it must to him feel in some way right. The way things are, as they should be. His world as our world is always in that state of change. The shifts in the light as a cloud passes below the sun. The flow of warmth over a frosty meadow as the sun rises. The play and dance of air currents, thrilling and eddying over cops and hillsides that he is learning to master on his still juvenile wings. And it's just a fraction of a second eye contact, but it's clear and unambiguous. In the directness of that fleeting moment, I am, of course, really just seeing within the blackness of those eyes a reflection of me. Me through the eyes of another, non-human, more than human. One who experiences the world in ways that I cannot, but who feels the water, its movements the ebbs and currents, the soup of nourishment that lazily folds and unfolds above the rich muds of the canal bed, who touches the winds in ways I cannot, and knows a significance to their movements that is hidden from me, but who encounters the rush of those same hormones in his body that I feel in mine, but perhaps experiences them in other ways. And for a while, it feels as if I am part of a larger, richer world, in which the Berlin walls that segregate species, that emphasizes difference and locks them into categories according to physiognomy and utility, they begin to fall and dissolve that I am touching the world as we lived it before the great disconnect, before we as a species took the decisions to alienate ourselves from our home and those that we share it with, to withdraw into a smallness of a small world and the penury that this brings. And in that moment, together, Cyril and I float on the same waters, and feel the breath of the same easterly wind. We share the same world, and both live by our senses, using whatever we can to process and understand them. Brothers and strangers, kin and alien. The connection, albeit fleeting and nebulous, of Two beings who experience and share the same world, no matter our difference. The we 
of Booba's eye, thou never now I it. But not in the way that naively tries to reduce a swan of her distinctive swannishness. The enforcing of a human mould, a sentimentalised bird-human hybrid, as if we humans are only capable of finding community and a sense of connection and significance with others like us. Cyril and I may feel our shared space within the world in very different ways, but we also share so much in that feeling. Winds veer and back. Rains lash the water until it hisses and bubbles and then goes. The once comforting shadow of a parent no longer feels the same way and new waters beckon and call. For things to remain as they've done, unchanged, without growth, without development, would have been to impose something unnatural, something alien, something that would have betrayed the swan in him and his parents. I go back below to put the food pot back in its place and take a peek out of the porthole by the stove. A quick little wag of the tail, a dip of the beak to drink some water, and off he pushes, leaving behind him a chaos of ducks and a bobbing widgeon. This is the Narrowboat Erica, signing off for the night, and from Cyril, wherever he is. And from me, I wish you a very peaceful, restful, safe night. Good night. Temperature outside, 8.1 degrees. Inside, 24 degrees. Humidity, 62%. Viewpoint, three degrees. Wind direction, southeast. Wind strength, 16 miles per hour. Barometric pressure, 1005.4 falling. Cloud cover, 90%. Cloud ceiling, 21,800 feet. Precipitation, 2.03 millimeters. Moon phase, 73% waxing gibbous. Day length, 11 hours, 38 minutes. Sunset, 18.06 Skycasting, 6.26